والصلاه والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين. اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي. So what we're going to talk about today is the continuation of the story that uh, we were discussing last time that was sort of abruptly cut off. But it's such an important story to understand in detail that I want to both kind of back up and fill in some details that I had to brush over and then I want to finish the story. So just to kind of remind you where we were before, the, <clears throat> the Prophet ﷺ had had a vision that he was making Umrah and him and 1400 Sahaba went on this odyssey to the lion's den, into the lion's den, to Mecca, um, where the people were that had just tried to, you know, eliminate their existence less than a year before. So this was a very, this took a lot of courage to take this, um, take this journey. And, um, they were cut off on the road there by Khalid ibn al-Walid and his brigade, and therefore had to take a, an incredibly treacherous path to Mecca. And, and all of these details are extremely relevant, that's why I'm repeating them. Uh, because what they had to go through to get to where they were was extremely taxing. They, they were exhausted and bloodied. Their feet were, uh, you know, one narration says that not a single one of their ihram was free from blood. Everybody's ihram was bloodied at the bottom because of the way that they had to walk through jagged rocks and, um, you know, these, these very difficult, it's very difficult terrain to get to where they were going. And when they were about to reach Mecca, what happened actually was the Prophet camel just sat down and wouldn't move. And no matter what they did, she wouldn't get up. And he said, this, uh, this is not her normal behavior, and therefore this is from Allah. And he wants us to stay here. And this was Hudaybiyah. So Hudaybiyah is like very close to Mecca, very close to where we are right now. It's just right on the outskirts of Mecca. Um, I'm just, are they, are they with us? It's just distracting. Okay. Um, I'm so easily distracted that I'm just talking. We'll try to ask them. My mind goes to ask them. Yeah. But it talks in Arabic. Bismillah. We'll try to soldier on, inshallah. So. So this Hudaybiyah was was uh, was at the outskirts of Mecca, very close to here. It was a dry, barren land. It had a dry well. The Prophet ﷺ said, "Okay, we're going to just set up camp here." He made wudu, and he, um, as he made wudu, the water went into the well from his wudu, and it swelled up in water, and everybody drank, and the animals drank, and everything was 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 fine after that. So. I want to go through the three messengers that were sent from um, Quraysh. So Quraysh knew that they were out there and they were in this dilemma of not knowing what to do. They didn't want to bring them in. They didn't want to let them in because it would be, um, they would sort of lose face and um, 
they they didn't want the Prophet to have the legitimacy of being able to come in and, and do Umrah. At the same time, they didn't want to just go out and and like slaughter them because they were in Ihram and it was so against the code of honor of the Arabs, especially Quraysh, whose <coughs> entire status, entire sort of um, reputation in the peninsula was as the people that hosted the pilgrims. And if you, if a you know news goes out that 1,400 people in Ihram come unarmed to make Umrah, whoever they are, because the rule is even if you're at war with Quraysh, they have to let you in and protect you if you're coming for Ihram, with Ihram. So they couldn't just go out and massacre them. So they were really in this dilemma and they were trying to just get them to leave. That was their goal. They were like, the singular focus goal is we need to get these people to leave. So they kept sending messengers to them and they sent three different messengers the first one interestingly um, was from a tribe that was not the Quraysh but a tribe that was actually friendly with Bani Hashim to sort of soften the Prophet up to get him to leave and and the guy comes and he says you know I just left Quraysh and they are just so strong and so full of vitality and so um, you know ready for war and it was so funny, it was like, the sheikh says like, the Prophet was like, no, no they're not, sorry. Um, <laughs> they are very tired, they just had this defeat, and, and they're not interested in war, I know that. Um, so he just called his bluff completely from the beginning, and he said, look, I'm not, I'm not asking for war, I'm not here to fight. I want what is, what is the, the custom of our people, that I be allowed safe passage into Mecca so I can make Umrah. We are here unarmed as um, you know, pilgrims. And he said, I have three things to offer them. These are my three offers. He says, one is we have a treaty where we stop fighting for a period of time, like a peace treaty for a, a set amount of time. Two, that they accept Islam. That's a great idea. So that's number two idea. Um, or three, if they insist and, and reject these things, then, then we can fight them. And I will not, you know, I will not give up this mission um, I would rather fight them or die in the process, but I'm not going to give up this mission. So the messenger said, okay, and he went and conveyed this message to Quraysh, and he was won over. Like I said, everyone they sent to convince them was actually convinced the other way, and he, they actually become advocates on their behalf. They go back to Quraysh and say, you know, just let them in, right? So the second guy comes out, and he's again from another tribe, not Quraysh, so they're, they're again being very diplomatic trying to just get this to happen just to get them to leave which is an indication of the prominence and the power the muslims actually have and ha have grown to have because they never really minded they were trying to assassinate the prophet before so this is this is like an ishara a signal that the muslims are starting to even in the eyes of their enemies grow in prominence and and, and gaining respect so the second man comes and the Prophet ﷺ recognizes him as a man who is devoted to tradition. So it's just the, the, the incredible emotional intelligence of the Prophet ﷺ, where he treats everybody according to their individual um, inclination. So the second man comes and this is a man who respects tradition. So the Prophet ﷺ, uh, greets him with talbiyah and he just says, you know, this is all we're here to do. And, and that man was won over. And he went back and said, just let them in. All they want to do is Umrah. 
the third man comes and he was the big shot. Like he's the, he's like their sort of like their secret weapon. Um, so in the Quran, when it, when it says that, um, why, you know, when the, when the Kuffar were asking, why wasn't this sent on one of the men from, from a, a man from one of the two cities? And it was like actually referring to specific men who are very prominent and very sort of well regarded. He is one of those people that the Quran is referring to that the, that the Quraysh were like, why would, you know, why would Allah send it on you? Why wasn't it, you know, someone like him? So he's the guy that comes, and um, and he's and he's the one that insults the prophet by saying, "Have you ever heard of someone, you know, fighting their own people? You know, this is going to bring shame to you. And if they fight you, all these people are going to, you know, flee and leave you to, to yourself." And so Abu Bakr responds to him in a very strong way, and he says, "If I, you know, if it, if it hadn't been for your favors, I would have responded in a different way." So he goes back, and this was the interesting thing. He goes back and he tells them, I have, I have traveled the world. I have been and I, I have been to Rome and I have been to Persia. I have been to uh, Ethiopia. I have seen the kings of the world and not a single one of them commands the kind of love and respect as this man. And he describes how the Sahaba treat the Prophet, the amount of love and respect and deference. He says, when he speaks, they are silent. They won't even look him in the eye out of respect. When he commands, they, they oblige. They, they, they fight each other over the water from his wudu. That was, those were his descriptions. And it was so interesting because it was like the exact opposite of what he was saying. The psychological warfare they were trying to use is he was like, oh, these people would just leave you. Well, what he's thinking is like these people would like, you know, sacrifice their life in like a heartbeat for you. And he said, um, again, he said, just let them in and, and they want peace. So, <clears throat> so then it was time for the Muslims now to send a, a, a messenger and they sent um, Uthman ibn Affan. And this was a very, very specific and well thought out choice. So. There's all this background, like these weren't like random choices, like, oh, you, go, no. It was very well thought out. So why Uthman? First, actually, initially, the Prophet, and this, this is also important, I'm just going to dwell on these details because I actually think they're important. The first person the Prophet chose actually to go as, an, uh, as a messenger was Omar, not Uthman. Omar said, no, it shouldn't be me. It should be Uthman, and here's why. And he actually gave a, a different opinion. He said, my tribe isn't as strong as his tribe. They won't hurt him because of his strong tribe. They could hurt me. I'm fine being hurt, I have no problem. But just so that this mission actually goes through should be someone from a strong tribe. Also, um, he's known in Mecca, he's well-loved because of his generosity. He's a very wealthy man and he used to just give, give, give. Everybody has received a gift from him. So he would be a better person to send than me. So this this like total egoless kind of approach to things. Like it's just about the mission, even though it's this huge honor. Wow, to represent the Muslims with Quraysh in this like historical negotiation that we're all gonna talk about for the rest of time. And most of us don't even know Omar was like the first choice of the prophet, right? I'm telling you something that most people just glaze over. But he, he, he set himself aside for the purpose of the mission, to be 
as, as his top priority. <clears throat> so Uthman does get sent over. And here's what the Quraysh do, which is so interesting, is they, they tried a different approach. They're like, oh, our, our wonderful favorite person, come, we're so happy you're here. Hey, would you like to do a tawaf around the Kaaba? You know, like they're literally trying to bribe him with what? Not money or not anything that he would be easily saying no to. To the thing that he's dying to do, the thing that they all came to do. And it's so like, it's so evil and, and yet brilliant to try to do that because as some of you might know about influence, right? There's a book called Influence and it talks about the levers of influence, how you have influence over someone. One of the most powerful level, levers of influence is reciprocity. So I give you a gift, not one you ask for, not one you're, you're like, you know, whatever. It could be something so tiny, but I give you a gift. As soon as you accept my gift, you now are indebted to me. You have to do something nice for me, just psychologically. So I have power over you. You're almost like, you know, under my command. So they weren't just trying to give him a tiny little, you know, gift. They were giving him the biggest thing they could give him, which is, why don't, why don't you do Tawaf around the Kaaba? Just, you know, be between us. And he he refused it. He refused Tawaf. He said, I will not do Tawaf until the Prophet does Tawaf. He's the one that's going to do it first. So by refusing that and staying firm, um, he, they had no power over him. So essentially what happened is, as I said, the news came or the news was sort of um, like the Muslims were of like were led to believe that he was murdered, right? And this was a huge, a huge uh, break of trust, a huge break of honor, their, their own honor code that that a messenger would be murdered. So this was an act of war, like by any measure, like there there was nothing they could do now except go to war because of this provocation and the murder of of Uthman so this is the key, key, key point of the whole story, okay? Which is this bayat that the Prophet Ali, this is where we ended, and I wanna just pick up from here. The bayat is he brought the 1,400 people together. They, I said 14, I, my sister's like, did you say 14? I'm like, oh, no, I meant 1,400. All of them were brought together and were asked, are we gonna fight? Will will you fight the the Quraysh because of this um, act of war? And every single one took the bayat under the tree, and it's referred to. It is so important that it is referred to. It is actually enshrined in the Quran in in Surah Al-Fatih. And this bayat is is described as like the most significant beautiful thing ever right it's like they they are described in the quran as having um been given sakina in their hearts in the midst of this incredibly impossible situation where they were signing up for certain death right because they were essentially unarmed and the Quraysh had, not just the Quraysh, but their allies were the people they had to fight. So this was not going to be a fight that they could win. 
and yet they were willing to sacrifice this dunya for the akhirah. And this was all observed by the Qurayshi um, eyes. They, they were, there were spies everywhere and knew exactly what was happening. So this act of incredible sacrifice made the Quraysh want to negotiate for peace. And I think this is incredibly important because the Fath, it was Hudaybiyah in terms of the treaty, but it was actually the Bay'ah of Al-Ridwan or the Bay'ah of, of the treaty. The Fath was you overcame your attachments to this dunya and you were willing to sacrifice everything for the akhirah and that was the victory and I'm going to read you a hadith that I was um, really struck by okay Al-Bukhari this is um, narrated uh, by Al-Bukhari recorded that Al-Bara bin Azib said you consider Al-Fatih to be the conquest of Mecca which was indeed a victory however we consider Al-Fatih to be the pledge of Ar-Ridwan on the day of Hudaybiyah then we were 1400 with the messenger of Allah so the Fatih is the thing we all may have overlooked it might have seemed so insignificant it wasn't pageantry, it wasn't fireworks, it wasn't conquest in the, in the traditional sense, but the conquest was over their own nafus. So after, they, after the Meccans saw, after the Quraysh saw, this was a people that could not be defeated because they were already willing to sacrifice everything for their beliefs. Then is when they finally agreed to negotiate for peace. Before that, all they wanted to do was do different things to, to pressure um, uh, to pressure the Prophet um, to leave. But I just wanna mention one other actually major thing before I go into the negotiations. There were some young men within the Quraysh who were, you know, as young men sometimes tend to be, more zealous than, than kind of level-headed, wanting to figure out a diplomatic solution, and they just wanted war. So 50 of them, without the permission of their elders, went, rode into the Muslim camp, and these were the children, the, the sons of the nobility of the Quraysh. So they were, you know, they were kind of used to just doing whatever they wanted, acting with impunity. And we don't know anything about that, but that's how you know the the elite of uh, political elites' kids kind of act, right? So fifty of these young men, in the middle of this very tense negotiation, go in and try to assassinate the Prophet into the camp of the Muslims, trying to kill the Prophet. Or if they couldn't kill him, they at least kill somebody. And they knew they couldn't win; it was only fifty, but they wanted to provoke war. That was their goal. What happened? The Muslim guard saw them, captured them, and they were now Asir. They were now prisoners of the Muslims. 
Now I'm thinking, okay, you have 50 of the sons of the elite. Like you basically have all the, all the power. You can leverage, you can negotiate, you can, you can ask for anything you want, basically. What did the prophet Isaiah do? He didn't ask for ransom. He didn't ask for anything. He just released them back to Mecca as a show of goodwill. We could spend a long time just analyzing that decision. So they decide to negotiate for peace. And they send a messenger now from the Quraysh because it was on behalf of the Quraysh. You can't send, you know, your friend or your ally. You have to send one of your own. And he was like relatively less hostile than, you know, some of the others. And um, while he was dis discussing with the Prophet, a young man was standing next to the Prophet, sort of watching it, just making sure everything was okay. And the messenger from Quraysh, sort of in an effort to sort of make a point, he was, he, they're very physical in the way they talk. I mean, not, you know, just like Arabs today, I guess, but he grabs the Prophet's beard. He just like holds his face like this. And the man standing, the young man standing next to the Prophet draws his knife as a warning. Why that's significant is this young man was the nephew, the first blood nephew of the, of the messenger. And it was a very clear signal that here the bonds, the, the loyalty to tribe takes a backseat to the loyalty to truth. And these signals, you, these people are, are all about subtleties. If you study different cultures, there's high context cultures, low context cultures. High context cultures, everything's unspoken. You know, you have a conversation, no one even talks. They're just like, <laughs> right? The Arabs were super high context culture, uh, you know, people. So every little thing, that's why the Syria, you have to understand all these details because they all were sending these messages like, no, no, no. If you think you're going to win favor because this person's your nephew, this person's your brother, it's not going to work. So here were the terms that they agreed to. Now, now the, the, the actual negotiation, um, you know, you may have even heard about it. And, and it's like they start out, OK, this is between, you know, the Quraysh and Muhammad Rasulullah. And they're like, no, sorry, if I thought you were Rasulullah, I wouldn't be fighting you. We're not, this is a legal document. You need to take that out. And and Ali Radulawanu, who was writing, was like, "No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not crossing that off." And the Prophet Ali is like, "Where is it? Where does it say it? You know, we can't read." So, so he had so Ali, out of being commanded, had to tell him, and and it was crossed off. It was just. You know, Quraysh and Muhammad ibn Abdullah, very factual. And then the four terms of this negotiation of this treaty, and they're all very important. So the first term is that the Prophet would go home, salam, and come back next year, and he would be protected, and he would uh, he would actually basically have Mecca to themselves for three days. After that. Um, and this is after three, uh, after 13 years of persecution and three battles, and then they were going to have like this very special treatment in Mecca the next year. 
because this was the first time it was unprecedented that the Quraysh would actually leave Mecca completely open without any guard, without anything for three whole days. So that was a win actually for the Muslims that they would get that even though it was going to be the next year. But you know, the fact that they had to leave and come back was also still a disappointment. The second thing was that war would be halted for 10 years. Now I want to I want to stop here for one second and just reflect on this. It's very hot. Who benefits from an environment of fear? Is it the truth or is it falsehood? Who, what, what side benefits from an environment where everybody's terrorized um, from, from joining a group or believing in something? Falsehood. Falsehood benefits because if you just give people freedom and choice, falsehood, you know, truth is, is made clear from falsehood. So you have to add something. You have to add, you know, a very well-funded Islamophobia industry. You have to, if you just leave it a play, you know, a, a level playing field, the truth will, will win. So the 10 years of peace was a huge win for the Muslims, a huge win and a huge defeat for the Quraysh. Then the third one is, um, Whoever wishes to become an ally of the Muslims, they can, and whoever wishes to be an ally of the Quraysh, they can. So they can go now and actually recruit allies. Before, they didn't have a single ally. Muslims were literally by themselves because anyone didn't want to take on, you know, Quraysh and all and, and the entire Arabian Peninsula. They're like, no, I'm good. Even if I'm, you know, I believe that you're okay or you're good, I'm not going to do that. I can't take that on. So they would either be neutral or they would join the the stronger side. Now things were safe for people to recruit allies. And this was incredibly important because it eventually leads to the conquest of Mecca. And then the fourth one was really the hardest part for the Muslims to accept, which is whoever comes to Medina against their guardians, they will be returned to Mecca. And whoever um, leaves uh, Medina because they don't wanna be Muslim anymore and goes to Mecca, they're not, they're not gonna be returned to, to Medina. And um, so this was very hard because there were Muslims actually in Mecca who were being oppressed and they couldn't you know, basically leave against their guardian's um, wishes. Now there was an interesting exception made and not on purpose, but because they didn't write it as gender neutral, and I'm not even kidding, it was because the, 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 the treaty was written about men, meaning women, but it, it didn't mention women explicitly. So the women were a loophole. Any woman who escaped Mecca against her husband's will, against her father's will, against whoever, was not returned. Women were the exception. And they got to stay in Medina, which I thought was kind of interesting. So after this was written, after this was signed, um, there was just, the Muslims were actually demoralized because they couldn't now go for Umrah. They had to go back after this huge, difficult road that they had to take. All that had happened, the, the 50 people that came in trying to assassinate them. They, I mean, just everything that happened. Think of how hard it was for us <laughs> to come here, right? From far away and imagine coming here and at the, you know, at the airport, like, mm, nope, your paperwork isn't right. You know, go home, come back to, you know, next year. 
It's devastating, but this is so much more. So they were very, very, you know, deflated by this news. They were also unhappy about the terms of this treaty. They didn't like some of these things about returning people and, and so forth. Especially in, in the most vocal was Omar Rajalan. And yet his role in this story is very important because it shows the character of the Prophet. So Omar is questioning him, questioning the Prophet of God. Didn't you say we were gonna make Umrah? Didn't you see a vision? What happened? And the Prophet says, I didn't tell you what year. I didn't tell you when. I just said we were gonna make Umrah. I didn't say it was gonna be this year. And that, that was not, you know, that answer did not satisfy Omar at all. And so he goes and talks to Abu Bakr, trying to like get an ally to like, you know, protest this, this decision. And Abu Bakr's like, nah, you're not gonna find any support here, you know. You know, Allah and his messenger know best. So he keeps trying to talk to the Prophet and he, and he goes to him and he says, I need to talk to you, I wanna talk to you. I need to discuss this with you. And the Prophet just started to like not even respond. It was like, Khalas, I already gave you an answer. You're not like, you know, you're not satisfied. There's nothing really more else to talk about. Like we've already made this decision. We're all gonna be, like they're returning. They're like on their, uh, almost on their path back. So he keeps trying to um, talk to him. And he would come and he would like come in front of him with his camel and try to talk to him and he did it three times and every time he just was, was um, didn't get a response. And so then he started to worry. He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm better off dead. Now the prophet is mad at me. What am I gonna do? And then at that moment, someone calls him and says, Omar, the prophet just, just received revelation and Omar was like terrified. He's like, oh my God, now no, Allah said something about me in the Quran, like it's that bad. So he goes to the Prophet because he was he was being asked to come. He's like, no, he wants to talk to you. It's like, oh, okay. He goes, and the Prophet had the biggest smile. His his face was like beaming, beaming with joy. And he said, I have, I have received today something that is better than, than all the world and, and everything in it. And it was Surah Al-Fatiha, where Allah tells him that he has indeed given him a great victory. And I, wanna, I just want to point out a couple things about this incident between him and Omar that are so, it is so sweet and special. First of all, we heard from the Quraysh leader or the, the ally of the Quraysh, how the, the, the Sahaba treated the Prophet with incredible reverence, with incredible love. They were willing to lay their, their life down for him without a thought. But that didn't make him someone that they weren't able to ask of, that, that they weren't able to in fact even challenge. So this idea of respect meaning we don't even, you know, we don't ask anything or we don't, um, question any decision just isn't isn't a part of our our tradition so the fact that he was still able to question the prophet or have a different opinion about who should go in as an as a messenger is all part of the prophet strength as a leader that he was he was trying to raise up other leaders not yes men 
He had companions, not, not disciples. He had people that he, he loved and he respected and wanted to develop them, wanted to grow a, a generation of leaders. So that's the first thing. The second thing is even though there was this tension between them and that Omar was being very vocal about disagreeing with this decision that had just been happening, you know, that just happened in front of the whole world. That's why we know it happened because it was very public. When the Prophet got this good news, he wasn't like gonna like stonewall him, give him the silent treatment, make him like stand in the back, punish him for the way he was challenging him. He was happy and wanted to share with him. That was how their relationship was with each other. It wasn't one of grudges and you did this to me and now you just, you know, you embarrass me, you're undermining my leadership, now I'm gonna punish you. I was really struck by the fact that it was Omar who was being called to come and see and share in this happy moment of the Fath. The other, the third thing that I think is so beautiful is the fact that the Fath is not the conquest of Mecca, right? That this, we have given you a clear victory. Fath al-Mubinan. And it wasn't about Mecca. It wasn't about the fall of Mecca, which you can argue in every possible way was a victory. It was that, and there are two interpretations of what the Fath is referring to. There isn't just one. One of them is the more obvious one, which is that this, this a treaty is, 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 a, is a victory because now you have peace and you can call for da'wah and it's much safer to be a Muslim. But the other interpretation is the Fath was the oath of allegiance under the treaty, the, the oath of Ar-Rudwan, where, where they were willing to sack, they had overcome their own nufus, that our victories, our greatest victories, and our clearest victories is our moment of sacrifice. And it says about them that they were forgiven their sins. Now, they obviously, none, not a single one died that day. They had lives that they continued to live. Therefore, they are, they're going to continue to be human beings, therefore make mistakes. And yet that act of sacrifice and faith was enough to carry them through the rest of their lives. So think about what that act can be in your own life. Sometimes an act of incredible sacrifice, an act of overcoming your nefs, is your great victory that can carry you through the rest of your life. And I'll, I'll just tell you one more detail that you've probably heard before, but I think it, it merits repeating, which is the fact that the Prophet said, okay guys, we're gonna go home now. We're not going into Mecca. We're not gonna do um, Umrah. Everybody needs to break their ihram. You need to slaughter your animals. You need to shave your head. And everybody just was like, was just in a state of shock that they weren't going to do Umrah, and they and they didn't respond, like which was very unusual, that they wouldn't respond to a direct command from the Prophet. And he just he didn't know what to do. They they were not listening to him. He went back into his tent, and he was with Umm Salama. That that was the wife that he brought with him to the trip. So he would always choose one wife and it was actually random it was by picking lots 
to accompany him. He wouldn't like take everybody. He wouldn't take three or four, whatever. It was just one. One wife would, would accompany him on any, any of his expeditions based on drawing lots. And I think that's very special and sweet in some ways because sometimes if you travel a lot, I recommend um, taking your child, you know, taking one child at a time with you just to have that special time with them. That's what Prabhupada did, um, you know, in the case of his wives. So Amma Sanama said, you need to lead by example. If you shave your head, then they'll do like they'll do the same. So she was the one that actually like gave him the idea, gave him the advice that that kind of opened up the situation, which was incredibly tense and he didn't know how to move forward. And, and he listened to her and did what she said, even in a, in a this wasn't like, what I love is like, that's a women's issue. You know, we'll, we'll consult women when it comes to women's issues. This is not a women's issue. This was like high level diplomacy and leadership and like something, you know, that today we would not think of as like, oh, well, you know, there's the women's committee and there's the woman, everything. It's so, it's like so like ghettoized. This was not how it was. He was talking to her and asking her thoughts and her counsel on something very um, like matters of, of national you know, importance. And she's the one that gave him this idea. And, um, and he in fact did that. He shaved his hair, slaughtered his animal, and everyone then did the same after they saw him do it. And a wind took all of their hair and blew them into Mecca. You know, symbolizing in a way that you know it is as if they've gone further, that their hair, um, you know, part of them has has reached the haram. Um, so what happens after Hudaybiyah is peace, and and I.